Good morning, everyone. First of all, I want to thank all of you who were praying for our team that went on the mission trip to visit the children. We support the Amistad Orphanage in Cochabamba, Bolivia. It was a great experience. The kids in the house that our church sponsors are really thriving, and we have a new addition, a nine-year-old girl named Abigail, who had been abandoned by her parents and was left to wander the streets alone until the authorities found her. I mean, I don't understand how a parent can, can just abandon a child on a busy street, but it underscores how important Amistad's work really is for these very precious children. In addition to being at the orphanage, we also took an overnight trip high into the Andes Mountains, about 12,000 feet, to a very remote Quechua Indian village of Aramisi, where the ministry of Amistad got its start. The only way there is an hour and a half ride on a dirt and gravel road that kind of snakes up the Andes with these hairpin turns about every hundred yards or so with the steep uh, ravines that drop hundreds of feet right at the edge of the road. And there are no, no guardrails, no nothing, just an old 15-passenger bus and an experienced driver. It's a white-knuckle ride even for folks who don't struggle with motion sickness or anxiety over heights. But there was a downpour during the night we were in Aramisee, so on the way back down, sections of the road had washed away. And our bus had to slow to a crawl to traverse the worst spots, you know, sort of like one inch at a time. And I've done that trip now many times, and this was the worst. My stomach flipped over a few times as our tires crept near the edge. And your mind starts playing tricks on you then, you know, wondering, you know, what would happen if your bus fell off a 200-foot cliff? And that's when prayer really begins to mean something. You know, you know, you may pray regularly as you rush into your day. Maybe prayer is an afterthought for you. Or maybe you used to pray more regularly than you do now, but you've kind of gotten bored with your prayers or you felt like you were kind of just going through the motions. You weren't really connecting with God. So sometimes God uses our circumstances to propel our prayer. Uses our circumstances to reignite our passion for prayer. A sudden crisis, a, a medical emergency, you get laid off, you never saw it coming. Uh, there's a family drama of some kind. Something happens and God uses that moment, that crisis, to sort of wake up your prayer life because all of a sudden the stakes are high. Suddenly you recognize how inadequate you are to face the situation alone. You realize you need God's strength. You need God's intervention because human resources are not enough. You need God to act. And believe me, everybody on that bus was praying, except for Don Gomber, who was stretched out asleep on the back seat. He missed the whole thing. You know, there's always one guy like that on every trip. In today's scripture passage from Daniel 9, we see the same thing happening. Though Daniel had a rich and regular prayer life, something happens that compels him to take his prayer life to a new level. Something happens that ignites his passion to pray and to plead with God to act, to intervene, to do something. Let's hear from Daniel chapter 9, starting with verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to the Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of, of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord 
and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame. Lord, because we have sinned against you, Lord, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God nor kept his laws he gave to us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. And drop down to verse 17. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. As we've talked about previously, Daniel was a Jew who lived in exile and captivity. God had blessed him with extraordinary talent as a leader and administrator and as one who could interpret dreams and visions. But with all that talent, he was never a free man. Though fiercely loyal to his Jewish roots and to Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, since he was captured and sent off to Babylon as a teenager, he never had the opportunity to worship God the way he wanted. Never got to offer sacrifices according to the customs of the Jewish people. Never celebrated the Jewish feasts or holy days. He didn't hide his faith, but he wasn't free to fully engage his faith according to the law of Moses. Because not only had he been forcibly relocated to Babylon, but Jerusalem itself had been depopulated and the temple destroyed. So Daniel is living in cultural isolation, but he never lost hope. He was a stranger in a strange land, grieving the loss of Jerusalem for his people. It was a bitter sadness that infected his soul. For six days he was called by a pagan name given to him by the Babylonians, Belshazzar. His Hebrew name Daniel meant God has judged, but his Babylonian name meant keeper of the hidden treasure of Bel. Bel was a pagan god of Babylon, so every day Daniel wore the name of that pagan god around his neck like an iron chain. Every time someone said his name, he was reminded that he was a prisoner, a man longing for home. And yet under God's providence, he had prospered. He survived plots against his life, political intrigues that, that sent several kings to an early grave. And he'd seen God do amazing things. His friends tossed into the blast furnace, and they survived through God's intervention. He'd spent a night trapped in a den of hungry lions and experienced God's miraculous protection. All kinds of people plotting his demise, yet in all that he remained faithful to God 
and to his duties. He, he gave superior service to a succession of kings, even though there was never even a hint that any one of them would ever let him go back to Jerusalem. Now, after more than 60 years of captivity, he still has not lost hope for the restoration of Jerusalem and the renewal of Israel, and he put that hope to words in his prayer. Chapter 9 begins with a fascinating insight into Daniel's secret of success. Daniel carefully studied the Hebrew scriptures, including the prophet Jeremiah. Now remember, Jeremiah did his work as a prophet in the years leading up to the fall of Israel and Judah to the Babylonians. He would have been alive and preaching when Daniel was just a boy in Jerusalem. Jeremiah prophesied the coming exile and then went into the exile with the Jewish people. And that's when he wrote the book of Lamentations, on the journey into exile. And already his recorded words are considered to be sacred scripture by the Jews. By the time Daniel is an elderly man, Jeremiah's words were revealed as inspired by God. And so Daniel is studying Jeremiah, and the passage he probably read was Jeremiah 25, starting with verse 11. It goes like this. The whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord. And will make it desolate forever. I will bring on that land all the things I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So 70 years of exile. That's what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. Daniel's in his 80s now, and he first came to Babylon as a teenager, so he starts doing the math. But there were three uh, deportations to consider. If God began the 70-year countdown with the first deportation, that took place in 605 B.C. So it wasn't nearly the end of the 70 years quite yet, and the return to Jerusalem might then be imminent. If God started counting the 70 years with the second deportation, that was in 597 B.C., so the return might be close, but a little further off. And if God started counting with the third deportation, that was 586 B.C. So the return was further off, but still not too far away. Daniel had been an eyewitness to the downfall of Babylon as they were crushed by the invading Medes and Persians. He'd seen that prediction by Jeremiah dramatically fulfilled right in front of his eyes. He himself had predicted that downfall after his encounters with King Nebuchadnezzar. So his heart had to be pumping faster to the return to Jerusalem has got to be soon. History tells us that the actual decree by King Cyrus to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem was given in the year 536 B.C. And the first wave of Jews began their six-month journey home soon after that. And so they returned to Jerusalem exactly 70 years after that first deportation. Pretty amazing to see that biblical prophecy fulfilled in history. But at this point, it hasn't happened yet. So Daniel feels compelled to pray and pray hard for God to do what God had promised to do. His heart is breaking for his people, and so he goes to God with this gut-wrenching prayer. Some people consider this to be the greatest prayer in the Old Testament, and it serves as a model for believers on what prayer should really look like. And 
you know, we often learn best by watching others, by observing. Like the saying goes, more is caught than taught. We learn better by observation than lecture. And many Bible scholars would say that if you want to learn how to pray, then just bundle this prayer with the prayer of Jesus in Matthew 6 and Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Put those three prayers together and you've got all you'll ever need to know about how to pray. But remember, prayer wasn't something odd or unusual for Daniel. We've already seen that he was a man of prayer throughout his experience in Babylon. He was disciplined in his prayer life. So this prayer is a natural extension or outgrowth of his consistent life of prayer. Now Michael Yusuf gives five lessons we can learn for our own prayer life from Daniel's prayer. And the first lesson is that prayer and scripture always go hand in hand. You've probably heard me say this a thousand times, but you know, you cannot grow spiritually if you don't read and meditate on God's word and then apply it to your life. Scripture is indispensable for a healthy spiritual life. You just cannot grow closer to Christ if you're not regularly ingesting his word. Jesus said it in John 6. He said, the words I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. Spirit and life. And if you're not in God's word, then you're not accessing his spirit or receiving his life. This might seem like a no-brainer, but it needs to be said over and over again because often we know what we should do, but we don't do it. I know I should exercise three times a week, but I don't always do what I know I should do. Studying the scripture wasn't just some intellectual exercise for Daniel. It was a lifeline. It's what kept him from giving up or giving in during the long years of captivity. He built his life on the word of God. It was his rudder, his anchor, his hope. His time in the word is what gave stability and strength to his life. Now over the years that I've been here as the preaching pastor, we've developed a simple pattern to help people have a deeper experience of Christ in their lives. We called it the, the six spiritual pathways. Six habits or, or personal disciplines that historically the church has recognized as, as conduits or pathways to a deeper spiritual growth. And here they are. Pray daily, study God's word faithfully, worship regularly, give generously, serve joyfully, and love continually. Six pathways to a deeper faith in Christ. And that first path, those first two pathways go hand in hand. Study God's word and pray daily. There's no skipping over that. No bypassing them if you want a deeper walk with Christ. And I hope you take advantage of the many Bible studies or Sunday school classes we have or download a Bible app with a reading plan that will help you get into the Bible. Listen to scripture on your commute. There are so many tools available to you to help you understand and apply God's word to your life. But none of that works unless you do. Because no one can do this for you. The second lesson. You have to give God room to act according to his timetable. Daniel knew the prophecies of Jeremiah. Daniel knew the promises and the character of God. But he didn't know the exact precise timing or method God would use to fulfill what he had promised. And this is really important for us to remember when we face you know, hard times or when we're praying for God to act. We know God is faithful. We know he keeps his promises. But we can only learn what his promises are by studying the word. That's where we find them. And often we want to tell God how to do his job. 
we set the timetable we think God should follow. We have the way forward all mapped out in our minds and we expect God to do it our way and that's just a little backwards. Daniel did not know how it was going to happen. He just implored God to do what God had promised to do. But he left the details in God's capable hands. Now we can turn and read the stories of how the return actually happened in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But Daniel didn't have that yet. When he was praying this prayer, he just had to trust God and God's timing. Lesson number three, pray with passion and confidence. Once Daniel understood what Jeremiah was saying, he immediately went to God in prayer. Verse 3, I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. It's a great verse, particularly as we begin the season of Lent, because Lent is this 40-day period leading up to Easter Sunday, and historically Lent was a period of fasting and personal reflection. I don't know when it turned into some of the silly things people do today, like giving up chocolate. That doesn't really have anything to do with the kind of introspection that originally accompanied Lent. In the Bible, fasting and sackcloth and ashes, it was a physical way of showing how serious a person was in his or her prayers. This wasn't some superficial, oh God bless everybody on the planet kind of prayer. Daniel was feeling it. I mean, this was gut level for him. This was a passion that he had for the restoration of Jerusalem. It was deep in his bones and so he began his prayer by acknowledging God's greatness. Acknowledging that God was greater than his circumstances. God's mercy and love greater than the sins of Israel that had led to the captivity and destruction. So Daniel got very focused. He got a clear view of the sovereignty and power of God. And you know it is a sign of spiritual maturity that when we pray we spend more time in praise and confession than we do in our asking. When we spend more time in praise and confession because that signifies we know more of God's immensity and our own unworthiness. We just want to be in God's presence without a long list of demands or petitions. First we acknowledge who God is and we can find peace and rest in that knowledge. So as Daniel poured out his heart into this prayer, there's a sense of desperation but there's also a real sense of confidence. This was a big God who moved nations around to fulfill his purposes for Israel. He had done it in the past and he would do it again in the future and God is still doing it today. So if you're struggling with your prayer life, you think your prayer life is boring. Well, if you're so bored with your prayers, imagine how bored God is probably listening to them. The 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody once said, some people's prayers need to be cut off at both ends and set fire to in the middle. So don't be surprised when your circumstances change and all of a sudden your prayer life takes on a new sense of urgency. God is trying to get your attention. Fourth lesson, pray with a humble heart. Throughout this prayer, Daniel identified with his people as he prayed. His confession was not they have sinned, but we have sinned. I mean, Daniel was like the most faithful and obedient Hebrew on the planet. Yet he included himself in this confession for the people of Israel. He accepted this corporate sense of responsibility for the ills that had afflicted his nation. And maybe that's what we need as a nation. Now as we all pray for our country, not finger pointing at others, but the humility to include ourselves in the need for national repentance 
and submission to God. That's the essence of humility. Not self-justification before God. King David said it this way in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So come before God with a a contrite and humble heart. And fifth, pour out your emotions in prayer. Daniel held nothing back. He prayed with deep intensity. Look at verse 18. He says, Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay. You can feel the emotion churning inside Daniel. You know, prayers in the Bible, especially the Psalms, are so full of emotion, anger and sadness, grief and joy and happiness, elation. The whole gamut of emotions is on display. And that means we don't have to cover anything up or pretend to be something that we're not when we pray. Whatever we're feeling, God can handle it. And in prayer, we can lay it all before the Lord, lay it on the line, and in that way, prayer can be a cathartic experience. Because you can be honest with God in a way that maybe you can't be with any other person. Maybe you can't let down your guard, even in front of your spouse or your best friend. You, you can't fully disclose all the stuff that's in your mind and heart to another person. But you can to the Lord. He knows it already. You're not going to shock him or take him by surprise. He's not going to reject you for your honesty. He's not going to shame you for your disclosure. He will embrace you with his grace. Daniel said it this way in verse 18. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. His mercy is there for you too. So pour out your emotions to him. Let me close with this final thought from Eugene Peterson, who said, In prayer we are aware that God is in action, and that when the circumstances are ready, when others are in the right place, when our hearts are prepared, he will go into action. Daniel lived to see God's promises spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. He lived to see them fulfilled. The Jews went back to Jerusalem. And as you pray, trust that God will act according to his perfect timing for your ultimate good. Let's learn to pray like Daniel. Lord, we thank you just for Daniel's example and the power of his prayer here, Lord, to intercede on behalf of of his nation and for himself, Lord. And as we pray for ourselves, as we pray for our church, as we pray for our country and our world, Lord, might we have the same kind of passion in our bones to see your promises fulfilled, to see you lifted up and exalted, to see you far above all of our circumstances, Lord, and to trust you for your timing and your provision. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.